tonight I want to uh, continue with the talk that I began the other evening, The Sure Heart's Release, and I'd like to begin with the words of the Buddha. So this holy life, bhikkhus, does not have gain and honor and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind, the sure heart's release, that is the goal of this holy life, its heartwood and its end. Here and in other parts of the ancient scriptures, the Buddha makes very clear that virtuous conduct through generosity through our practicing of the precepts in terms of refraining from harming, through our wholesome speech and behavior, concentration, knowledge and vision that comes along as we open our hearts and train our minds. All these indeed are part of the holy life, of the development of the mind. But they are not the complete path or the highest aspiration that the Buddha Uh, offered the teachings for. The ultimate aim and the very reason for the teachings, the Buddha said in different ways, is the sure heart's release. To point the way, to present the possibility of the unshakable deliverance of the mind, the sure heart's release. This means the ultimate reality the experience of the ultimate reality of the unconditioned, which sometimes the Buddha describes as the complete departure, the complete relinquishing of craving, the extinction of suffering. And in this talk that I'm offering to you, this is meant to help you to understand the path of practice, to understand what's going on in your own practice, and to be able to possibly see beyond whatever present ideas we have about where the practice can take us, to stay open to greater possibilities. So the last time I talked about the three pillars of the Dhamma, dana, which is generosity and giving, sila, which is the cultivation of a good heart, basically, about refraining from doing harm, and also bhavana, which I'll expand more on tonight. The practices of dana and sila, which I spoke more at length about the other day, in and of themselves bring great happiness. They bring a great sense of protection, a sense of inviolable well-being within ourselves when we practice giving or that constant ability to let go. Also practicing non-harming. We feel a sense of protection in ourselves, um, not relying on the protection of the outer world, but more deeply relying on our inner protection. It allows our inner world to relax, to not be constricted by regret, by guilt, by being lost in blaming others or being lost in being blamed. 
It produces a very powerful sense of faith when we practice these sincerely and wholeheartedly and we make resolves, as Steve spoke about last night, the resolve to purify our hearts through purifying our speech and our behavior. So when we do this, when we practice in this way, we gain a great ability to understand and to know and to feel confident that we can navigate this inner terrain. No matter what's going on outside of us that triggers uh, or activates something within us that is difficult to bear, we know that we can bear it, we can open to it. This kind of confidence allows us to go beyond, beyond our present understanding of what can be developed, of what can be known in our own hearts, in our own minds. We get a glimpse of a farther horizon when we do these practices. We get a glimpse of greater potential within ourselves. So this inherent capacity we have to experience happiness and peace in ways that are not dependent so much on the outer world, not conditioned upon anything in this world. More and more we learn this. It's not not theoretical to me. It's experiential. So when we understand that there's this possibility for a deep happiness and peace to come, uh, not conditioned upon anything in this world, maybe there's just a glimpse or short moment of understanding it, but it gives us great confidence and hope that it can be understood, realized, experienced more and more deeply, more and more often. So to go beyond the understanding of dana or giving with a generous heart, to go beyond the understanding of sila, living in harmony, as places that give us uh, this inviolable uh, place in ourselves of security. But with those two as sturdy foundations, faith in ourselves and in our well-being, we're more able to practice the third pillar of the Dhamma that I'll speak about tonight, which is bhavana, the development of the heart, the development of the mind, mental development, bhavana is often called. The translation uh, of this bhavana is bringing forth what has not yet been brought forth. So in the West, we hear this word mental development, and it usually means acquiring something, acquiring knowledge, of course, so we can use that knowledge to benefit ourselves and others in the world. It could also mean in the spiritual field going after and acquiring blissful states of mind. Nothing is wrong with any of that. But this bhavana goes beyond that. From the perspective of the teachings of the Buddha, this mental development is about understanding and strengthening the capacities of our heart, which actually liberate the heart, the mind, ourselves, from all those places that uh, are the roots of ignorance, where we may operate from, and from there the mind goes into the habit patterns of aversion and greed. 
eventually this mental development is about understanding the way to uproot greed and hatred and ignorance. Not by bypassing or ignoring it, but actually by opening to all of them. It's not either by overlaying ideas that aren't truly experienced or realized. So bhavana has two areas of mental development. The first area is called samatha, and this is concentration. By itself, concentration leads to calmness and tranquility. This calmness and tranquility is something that was praised by the Buddha and many other uh, areas of, of spirituality. This prepares the mind in stability and in strength. It helps to pierce through the illusions of wrong understanding when we have this concentration. It re- helps to reveal the truth of the nature of all of life. It supports that. But in and of itself, it doesn't develop wisdom. This is the second area of bhavana, the development of wisdom, called sometimes panya. You'll hear that Pali word. This is the practice of vipassana, which we're doing here, which leads to liberating insight, transformative understanding, which eventually leads to the unconditioned, which is sometimes you hear the word nibbana. So first to expand on this, fir- on this um, first part of bhavana, samatha, the concentration practices, and how do they work? So again, this is a way to help you understand what's going on in your practice. The concentration practices that we do, like all the Brahma-vihara practices of metta or compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity. Sometimes there are visualization practices. In the Theravada uh, lineage, we have the practices of the kasinas, these balls of color, which are given great attention to. Sometimes there are sounds, like mantras in other traditions. Sometimes there's a breath where we, the breath where we consciously and continuously bring our attention to the breath over and over again. These can all be uh, practiced as concentration. So what happens in concentration practice? In this practice, all the mental energy, all the attention, the energy, the mind is repeatedly sent to whatever is that chosen object that we're practicing with. Either it's the phrase in metta or the person in metta or the feeling that comes out of metta sometimes. In metta, there's limited um, objects, not just one, but there, there can be a few. Or it can be a certain form that we send the attention to, like a casina, a ball of color. Or it can be the breath, as I said. It's one, it's usually a single or limited experience. And so we know, as you've known in your own practice, when you send the attention there over and over and over again, very continuously and uh, repeatedly, 
whenever the attention falls away from the object, as many of you know who have done metta practice, we're asked to whatever object arises in the field of attention that's different from metta, we ignore that or we let, let it be to the side and we bring our attention back to the metta practice or whether it's the sound, the mantra, or a different form. Whatever else comes into the field of attention, the mind doesn't give it any energy or attention. And because this attention is so repeatedly going to this chosen object over and over again, many of you, if not all of you, will have felt or have felt for even a moment or sometimes long periods of time, a very deep calm that results from this, a very deep sense of tranquility. Because the momentum of that attention is so energized and so focused that it, kind of, it creates kind of a force field. And nothing else can come in that force field. In time, anything else that arises, even the hindrances, can seem so far away. It, we, we sometimes have a sense of their presence, but it doesn't uh, impinge upon that concentration. The energy is streaming towards the object with that full fullness of force. Nothing else can enter. The mind becomes so fixated on that vision or that sound or whatever the chosen object is, that it becomes absorbed. And sometimes you hear that word absorption in the practice. Sometimes that's uh, the translation of jhanas. It happens through repetition, through continuity on one or limited objects. This is concentration. That is why we advise you when we're doing Vipassana practice to eventually to open up out of the breath and not to remain on the breath over and over again because this leads to concentration. This is a samatha practice when you're doing the breath over and over again. When you open the attention, it becomes a different practice. It becomes Vipassana practice. But of course, we can use the breath uh, as a place of stabilization. So back to being absorbed. When the mind is absorbed in the object, there's a feeling of extraordinary calm, of great tranquility, of seclusion of mind. Um, We hear that, you know, in, in my own practice or people around me, yogis say, the mind feels so secluded. It feels like something will come in, a hindrance, but it just passes out, or it doesn't even come in. It feels like it's somewhere at the periphery. It feels like in that period of time, whether it's long or short, one feels like in a protective kind of a bubble. This kind of experience, of course, is very enjoyable. It's very refined, this mental seclusion. This experience, these experiences and this practice of concentration was exalted and praised by the wise and by the Buddha. This will last, this absorption as we all have experienced in one way or another, lasts as long as one continues 
to do the practice. When the momentum of the mind remains with that degree of focus, that feeling of tranquility, uh, that feeling of deep calm remains. And of course, it can be very, very seductive uh, when that happens. The mind, when it goes away, uh, we'll know that we were seduced by it or attached to it because we're frustrated that we can't get it back again. Or there's a sense of um, restlessness or anger about it. But when the practice um, does stop, we see that eventually that deep calm and tranquility just goes away. It dissolves. And all the hindrances return in full force. So those of you who have done the metta practice know that, you know, when the metta stopped, I experienced with most of you, when the metta stopped and we started vipassana, it, it didn't feel very good to start the vipassana practice because we weren't protected by the uh, seclusion as much as we were when we were just doing metta, the seclusion of mind. The hindrances come in and they're felt so uh, clearly in the mind, in the body, in the heart. So this concentration, this tranquility, this calm are important factors. They're supporting the, uh, our practice. They're supporting the deepening of our practice. But if we want to be free, we can't stay there because this is only temporary. It really doesn't free us from ignorance, from greed, from hatred. It provides this temporary place of deep seclusion, of a place where we can get a glimpse of the capacity of the mind. This is very important that we get this experiential glimpse of this capacity of the mind and of the heart because it brings us back over and over again to do the practice. The second category of bhavana is the development of wisdom, liberating insight, vipassana. And this is our vipassana practice. This is what actually frees the mind of ignorance, of greed and hatred, very supported by concentration, by calm, The word vipassana means seeing things as they really are with extraordinary moment-to-moment mindfulness. Not the kind of mindfulness that gets us through the day or that just helps us to be present with whatever experience there is. It's not just a matter of being present with experience. It's a matter of being really intimate with a moment-to-moment experience. So it can deeply, as uh, Joseph talked about this morning, deeply penetrate into that moment. So this extraordinary mindfulness is what Vipassana is all about. And when we do this practice, we open to the full range of experience, as the Buddha said, opening to the four foundations of mindfulness, not just one, not just the breath, or not just the experiences of the other, uh, of all the 40 different kinds of samatha practices, but of all the four foundations of mindfulness. Sensations in the body we open to, feelings, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings, 
the full range of mental experiences, the mental moods of the mind, the objects of the mind, which include joy, metta, anger, cruelty, uh, compassion, um, frustration, impatience, patience, you know, all the wholesome and unwholesome. Whatever is part of the habit pattern of this mind is open to. The experiences of the sense doors, hearing, smelling, tasting, all of those, the subtle and the gross. So during Vipassana, of course, we can use something as a primary anchor to come back to, like the breath, or place in the body, or sound, hearing. But we don't stay there. We just use it as a temporary place to stabilize the mind, to uh, gain some support with some concentration that we can then bring to the next moment. It's not exclusively on any one object. This is the big difference between vipassana and samatha. Vipassana opens to all the experiences. Samatha chooses one or limited number of objects. So as I said, concentration is hugely supportive, um, but we need the kind of concentration in Vipassana that is momentary, the kind of concentration in Vipassana that can be with changing experience, changing objects, not just to use one object. This is a really important distinction between Samatha and Vipassana. So as all of you have come to know experientially, the experience of Vipassana is not one of great calm. It's not one of delight. It usually feels quite chaotic when we don't have so much equanimity or so much calm. Um, we, can, we don't get absorbed in the object. It's momentary. It's momentary concentration on this object, then the next object, then the next object, going faster than that I can even explain. So it's on each micro moment of experience. Because the object of attention is always changing, the breath, the thoughts, the aversion, the wanting, the relief when there's some kind of calm, the calm, this is an important element of Vipassana uh, practice, that it is on changing objects so that that insight into impermanence can happen, can be open to. Otherwise, the wrong view of permanence remains in the mind in a very deep way, sometimes not even seen so clearly. So in the Vipassana practice, a subjective experience can be one of chaos when equanimity isn't strengthened yet. You know, we just feel like we can't stay on anything, even for a moment. There, there are a couple of times in practice, um, maybe more than a couple for me, where it opened to this experience of this changing nature of everything, and it was very scary for me just to open to it. I remember once, um, just coming to my mind, I was in Maui and practicing with Manindra, and I was just walking outside, just very relaxed, doing the walking practice, 
not expecting anything on this gravel path, and seeing over and over again how things were changing, how things were disappearing, how things were, were, when they arose, they immediately passed away. And so I was walking down this path, and all of a sudden just turning the attention to a hibiscus bush, bush and seeing the fluttering of the leaves and also the, um, the flower changing. You know, in hibiscus flowers, they bloom and die in one day. And so they, the blooming, I saw the blooming of in other parts, the dying of it and the dropping of it. And then the mind could see how the knowing of that was also changing, arising and passing away, arising and passing away. And it was so scary. I thought I wasn't doing something right, that the attention couldn't land on any moment. It was just dissolving every moment, every moment, every moment. So I, I stopped the practice and I went quickly to Manindraji and... Um, I told him of the experience, and when I told him, everything's falling apart, my practice is falling apart, nothing stays still, can't land on anything. And as a good teacher, he was happy for that moment. (laughs) Of course, I was in a lot of fear, and you know, and so he he helped me to calm down about that and to just see that just open to this, just get more um, used to this happening. So in different ways, he helped me to get more used to this happening. I felt like my practice was falling apart, of course, and there th- I'm telling you this because there can be moments when you feel like your practice is falling apart, but actually these are very good moments. These are uh, onward-leading moments in your practice. To think that the practice is falling apart is a wrong evaluation of your practice. This is why you need a good guide, someone who has been on that path, who can say, it's okay, actually, it's fine. You know, just develop that continuity that can know this place over and over and over again so that equanimity around this can begin to develop. It's better that we just don't judge our practice. When judging comes up, this is, a very, um, this is a really big hindrance to our practice, when judging comes up. We think because we're not calm, because we're opening to something that we're seeing that's very difficult, we think we, we, we don't have it anymore. But actually, we're going beyond. We're going beyond what has, was formerly known. And we're going into something, a new territory, which when known can bring us greater relief from uh, what we have known before to be suffering or dukkha. It's said that, you know, there's this judging of our practice and this wrong evaluation of our practice two major times in our being in, um, in any retreat or long retreat where we've gathered a lot of momentum. We may not feel it in a shorter retreat, like nine days, but in a longer retreat, we will. And I experienced this myself, you know, saying to myself and planning, I'm just going home. I can't take this anymore. I I really, this is not for me. I'm going to do something else. I'm going back to 
doing the sign of the cross, you know, which, <laughs> which I still do, you know. I have great reverence for my, the paths that have led me to this place. So um, I remember going to Upandita and saying, I'm, I'm not going to go stay here. I'm going home now. But I hadn't figured out how I could go home because, um, you know, I was so far away. I was in a foreign country. And so he just kept me going on it. He smiled. He was happy that this place had come to, come to pass. And um, there was another time when, I, when it got even more difficult. And I felt I was opening to even more that the mind never had opened to before. And I felt like this is way too much. You know, this is, this is way beyond the mind, what the mind can hold. But with greater and greater practice and touching that place, those places over and over and over again, the mind is able to be more relaxed with anything that arises. So because attention and this mindful attention is on this place of this passing away of whatever arises over and over and over again, this revealing insight into the true nature of experience starts to open. So what is that? What are the extraordinary facets that the mind begins to open to in these realizations? One of the first things that we hear in ourselves and from other yogis is this understanding. And it comes sometimes in very simple ways from yogis. It comes in very, sometimes people express it very calmly. Sometimes there's a surprise about it. Sometimes there's a a fear about it. There is this knowing that when um, the objects are arising, the experiences are arising, and there's the knowing of it, there comes to be seen that these are two distinct experiences. There's the object of meditation, the four foundations of, and the knowing of it. Over and over and over again, this is seen. And so this distinction, these distinctly different experiences come to be really clear. And Various times in, in my own practice, of course, and then seeing other yogis come, they say, oh, you know what? Knowing is really different from the object of knowing. And that's why there are times when you hear from us and um, from Joseph a lot, the, the uh, note or the notation of aversion being known joy being known, metta being known. You know, and, and that kind of framing of the experience begins to separate or to see distinctly the object and the knowing of it over and over and over again. And so this insight knowledge begins to deepen in one's experience. And the, the equanimity begins to be developed around this because of the continual opening to that experience. Also what begins to be seen is what is called the conditionality of all experience or the conditionality of all of life. A meditator realizes experientially, 
not because it's read from a book, not because a teacher said so, but experientially a meditator begins to realize everything arises due to different changing conditions coming together. Formations in the, in the ways of sensations in the body, feelings in the mind, mental moods, mental objects, including intentions, including the knowing itself, arise and pass away, arise and pass away. Nothing really permanently exists in and of itself. This can be also scary. Some, or, or for some people, this is a relief, depending upon the conditioning of that person. So the, the feedback that we get as, as teachers, and that we, we've known our teachers to know too, is we see that these conditions, they're just conditions, they're just events, one yogi said, oh, just very matter-of-factly said to me, not here but in another place, oh, they're just events, right? Events arising and passing away. And every, every event that I have noticed, said this meditator, every event that I have noticed really is just dissolving. It's not solid. There's nothing solid inside or outside or in the solidity of the connection to anything else that's really um, solid or permanent. And so this conditionality of all phenomena becomes to be known. This is another insight knowledge. Because of the continuity of practice, the momentum of mindfulness builds a lot of strength supported by the momentary concentration. And what happens is that it penetrates or it pierces or it unveils the illusion of solidity. So whatever one has thought about before to be solid, this body or even this mind, you know, as some kind of entity, not solid, but as some kind of entity, the compactness of everything begins to be seen through because of this strength of mindfulness, moment-to-moment mindfulness, uh, extraordinary mindfulness, because of this supportive condition of concentration and other conditions like equanimity or calm, tranquility, energy, joyful interest. The body or the, moment or the momentary experience of what we call body, you know, the sensations that arise in the body, that make up what we call body, are experienced elementally. We, don't, we no longer put a word, oh, this is the body that's doing this, or this is the knee that's having this pain. It, goes, it begins to go through those appellations of body, of knee, of me, or mine even, and they just become experiences of the elements, basically. So we don't see it as the elements. We don't put that kind of framework around it. But take, for example, the earth element. Earth element is manifested as hardness or softness. It's manifested as smoothness or roughness sometimes. So this is what we experientially notice. Hardness, softness, roughness, smoothness. The air element how is that manifested in the body? It's manifested as 
vibration. Sometimes when the mind is very still, the body seems to be very still, we feel very subtle vibrations. Someone here even said, I opened my eyes to see if the body was moving, but the body wasn't moving. It was picking up these very subtle vibrations, the air element moving. Uh, Vibration, swaying. Sometimes there's a feeling of swaying. Sometimes it's stiffness in the body, like air filling up a balloon and becoming stiff. When the, sometimes when there's a lot of concentration, somebody here said also, I just felt the body on its own just become very stiff and the, the spine became very straight and the head became very pulled up. This is the uh, air element. And Manindra said, when, to, told me once, when concentration is very strong, then air element becomes activated in the body. So this is when we feel the vibration, the stiffness come up in the body. Then the fire element is temperature, is heat and coolness and all the variation in between. This is what is felt in the body when there's a lot of uh, continuity of practice. Coldness in the body, heat in the body. Sometimes yogis feel a lot of coldness, sometimes a lot of heat. Sometimes in a very hot place like Burma, you'll see people all covered up, you know, with lots of blankets and, the he- and a hat over their head. And you, you know, then you know, oh, this is the heat element. This is the fire element happening in that person's body. So you'll sometimes, I'm after a yogi who's presenting the, the report to the Sayadaw and that person is saying, oh, there's a lot of heat, there's a lot of coolness. And the Sayadaw just says, just notice it as heat, as coldness, as coolness. Don't make stories up about it. Just notice that it's happening. So <clears throat> that's the fire element. And the water element, this gets manifested. Uh, these all get manifested because we stop seeing it as a per. We stop seeing this thing that's happening as me, as mine. It just becomes all these elements happening. Water element is experienced as heaviness in the body. Um, it's also, it's not one that can always be directly seen because it's, it's what is the cohesive quality of all of these elements. So the experience of all of these um, in the body become uh, seen so clearly, the arising of fire element the, and the dissolving of it, the arising of uh, water element, the dissolving of it. Pain. Pain is pain at one time uh, when we haven't developed a lot of concentration. But when a lot of concentration is developed, the pain is seen through. It's no longer the concept of pain. It's just these elements arising and passing away manifesting in the different ways that it manifests. So that's the body. But what about the mind in all its changing manifestations? A moment of the mind arises is as pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, or as a mood of the mind, or as intention even, or as even knowing, or beautiful experiences like equanimity, like joy, like metta, like compassion, or the unbeautiful parts of the mind, like um, 
all anger, clinging, of course, um, on all its various striations, these come to be seen in very, very clearly with moment-to-moment extraordinary awareness as arising and without getting lost in the words about it or the story about it, which can make it so solid when we just stay with the experience, even the experience of thinking, the arising and passing away of it, or any of the moods of the mind or the objects of the mind, come to be seen as just another phenomena, empty of any kind of um, solidity, of course, so ephemeral, yet seemingly so powerful. So everything that makes up this body, everything that makes up this mind as seen as unceasingly arising, unceasingly changing, unceasingly dissolving into nothing, over and over and over and over again. And the (laughs) mindfulness just gets used to seeing that over and over and over again. Fear may arise once in a while about it, but fear also is seen as an empty phenomena. So this is when the insight into anicca, or to impermanence, begins to deepen. And um, fear may just begin to not come up anymore, or it begins to be just a little ripple in the mind, not taking one off our practice. So, whereas previously we may may have felt that there's this ability to connect and sustain the attention on an object, in these periods of time cannot stay on any object. Everything is falling away. Everything is seen as transient, dissolving, disappearing like vapor. So the unstable nature uh, is, begins to be revealed, the unstable nature of everything. Everything in the body, everything in the mind. Perception, feelings, intentions, consciousness itself, all evaporating. Nothing lasts because uh, of this clear seeing, this powerful extraordinary moment-to-moment mindfulness. This is what the capacity of the mind is when we keep practicing. So because of this continuous changing, the insight into dukkha begins to arise. So that previous I was talking about, the insight into anicca, the insight into impermanence, and now the insight into dukkha. Because of this continuous changing, this insight into dukkha, which can be translated into unsatisfactoriness. The unreliability of life as a whole, or any moment of life, or any situation in life, or any person, anything, we begin to see, or wisdom begins to see, the unreliability of holding on to anything of uh, satisfactory that we think is going to give us enduring satisfaction, permanent satisfaction. This doesn't mean that we aren't happy anymore about whatever comes up in our lives, but it just means that we know it will go away. It doesn't last. And sometimes because of that, 
we enjoy the happiness even more that arises. So this is a liberating knowledge, actually. It's not a a knowledge that will drag us down. It's a knowledge that liberates us into thinking that there's something permanent that we have to attain somewhere, that we have to chase after, that, that we can hold on to whatever we have that's happiness and keep it forever. It's so liberating because we open to the truth and we begin to align our lives with the truth instead of living in ignorance. That's something or there is something that's present now or that will be present in the future that will give us something lasting in the way of satisfaction. So what happens in, in those moments and kind of gradually in life after one begins to open to this insight into dukkha, this unreliability of life to provide us with any permanent kind of satisfaction, is we begin to um, understand that more and more deeply. We become less and less um, able for the mind to go out and cling to anything because we know that it's not going to last. Of course, when it's there, we enjoy it. It's enjoyable. And, there, and it's fully accepted that way. But in knowing that it goes away, it goes away easily in the mind. In time, there's the abandoning of craving, the abandoning of clinging, because the mind no longer reaches out for anything that knows is going to cause this kind of dukkha. There's a deep um, settling in the mind. The mind, or wisdom, lets go of the notion of of permanence. It sees the truth of impermanence. It lets go of the notion of permanence. Because of this deep understanding, this of dukkha, um, it begins to seek areas of understanding and joy that can come through deeper and deeper wisdom. Dukkha means a lot more than suffering, of course. It means it's an understanding. It's an understanding, as I said, that we can't really find a permanent, satisfying experience anywhere. So because everything is unceasingly changing and one understands with great compassion the unreliability of life to provide some permanent satisfaction anywhere. There's um, a deep kind of um, turning of the mind. The mind starts to turn towards uh, the unconditioned. It starts to turn towards the Dhamma, the deep Dhamma. This is from the Buddha. He spoke this to the bhikkhus and it always usually names the place. At Savati, he said to the bhikkhus, form is impermanent, feeling is impermanent, perception is impermanent, volitional formations are impermanent, 
Consciousness is impermanent. What is impermanent is suffering. Why? Because we hang on. When there is no wisdom, we hang on. We cling. We cling to what is impermanent, thinking that it is permanent. So, from the basis of the insight into impermanence comes the opening to the insight into dukkha. From the basis of the insight into impermanence, or sometimes you hear the word anicca, comes also the insight knowledge of anatta. Atta means self, anatta, not self. So comes the insight into to, to the not-self characteristic of existence. All of these three are characteristics of existence. Anicca, or impermanence, dukkha, or unsatisfactoriness, and anatta, this not-self characteristic. So this is, again, from the Buddha's words. This is from the Sutta of the Greater Advice to Rahula, his son. So he said, Rahula, develop meditation on the perception of impermanence. For when you develop meditation on the perception of impermanence, the conceit, I am, will be abandoned. The conceit, I am, will be abandoned. So how is that? Of course, when everything is arising and passing away that we think of as self, this form, this body, um, perception, uh, feeling, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, volitional experiences, um, or consciousness itself. When all of that is seen as as impermanent, where can we hold anything within those experiences that we can say, this is permanent, this I can hold on to, this is controllable. In any one um, moment of that experience, or any one of those experiences, or any of those experiences coming together that form like what we call a sense of self, can't hang on to any permanence there at all, any solidity there at all. The aspects of mind uh, continually arising and passing away. Nothing solid in here. And neither is it in connection with anything else, in the oneness of everything. There isn't anything solid there either. So in this pixelated view of experience, this one, this moment-to-moment view of experience, there is seen so deeply, profoundly, experientially, there is nothing to name as Kamala, as woman, as self. (laughs) It's, It's sort of, you know, it can be fearful, but it can be incredibly relieving, too. Of course, there can be fear about this, and, but then again, even with, as with Anicca, as with Dukkha, the mind becomes um, more deeply and deeply understanding of this. Wisdom grows. The ability of the mind through equanimity to hold this uh, grows 
become stronger. And so one comes to understand, yes, there is a sense of self. You know, all of these um, experiences of the body, of the mind, that come together to form this sense of self that must relate in the world and must be in the world as a relative uh, sense of existence, of being. But deeply, one begins to know in the absolute realm, in the ultimate realm, the not-self characteristic of all of existence, of any, any one experience or any experiences coming together to form uh, a sense of self. It's just a sense of self. But as um, Aiken Roshi, one of um, our, used to be one of our neighbors on Maui and a, and a great teacher, he said, your sense of self can do great things in the world. Don't forget that. You know, it's a sense of self, but it can do great things in the world. It can help. It can have compassion. It can do good. It can also do evil. So when we understand this and we're able to live in, with the relative understanding and the absolute understanding, we live with the um, deeper knowledge. This is called living with wisdom. It's living with the whole truth, not just part of the truth, not just the part of the truth that makes us comfortable or that kind of puffs up our sense of self, but it's a kind of truth that brings humility, that brings more compassion, that brings, of course, with it, greater understanding when we see the suffering in the world. We understand how hard it is. This is from Trungpa Rinpoche, and he um, gives a description of this anatta, very beautifully. So I'd just like to read his description. The experience of oneself relating to other things is actually a momentary discrimination, a fleeting thought. If we generate these fleeting thoughts fast enough, we can create the illusion of continuity and solidity, or a self, the illusion of a permanent, enduring self. It's like watching a movie. The individual film frames are played so quickly. They generate the illusion of continued movement. So we build up an idea, a preconception, that self and other are solid and continuous. And once we have this idea, we manipulate our thoughts to confirm it. And we are afraid of contrary evidence. It is the fear of exposing this or the denial of impermanence that imprisons us. It is only by acknowledging impermanence that there is a possibility of appreciating life as a creative process. So we, become, we come to understand this, and um, the mind or wisdom sees things as they really are. This is what Vipassana is to see things as they really are, impermanent, unsatisfactory, not-self. These are the characteristics. During this time, all during this time, this profound equanimity begins to develop 
um, towards all formations. It's called sankara upeka. Upeka means equanimity. Sankara means all formations. No reactivity to any experience that arises through the five sense doors or through the sense door of the mind. When the mind is like this, we begin to see, as I'm told um, or read about, that this is like the mind of an arahant, this what is sometimes called six-limbed equanimity or sankara upeka. Um, this is a time when Manindra would say, for example, let go, let go, let go, let go, let go of everything. It's not because we have to intentionally let go. It's because of seeing the impermanent nature of everything. Form is impermanent. Feeling is impermanent. Perception is impermanent. Volitional formations are impermanent. Consciousness is impermanent. Whatever is impermanent is dukkha. Whatever is dukkha is not self, is anatta. So the momentum of that continuity becomes so profoundly powerful that the only direction it can go to, it it has a great deal of freedom built up, freedom from uh, ignorance, relative ignorance, freedom from the hindrances. And because it has this powerful direction in, in, in its life force, it can go nowhere else but towards the unconditioned. It, that's the direction that it takes. The sure heart's release. Nibbana. And so this is, um, this is inevitable if we take this path seriously. It may not be part of your vision right now, but by walking this path in a sincere serious way, it's inevitable that this will happen. As uh, Upandita says, in this very life, it can, it will happen. And so I'd like to read you the, the Buddha's words about Nibbana, because it really cannot be described, it is said. It ca- it's, there is nothing actually to describe It's beyond thoughts, it's beyond words, beyond description, beyond imagination, beyond formations, even the formation of knowing. It's beyond that formation. It's beyond dying, it's beyond birth, it's beyond becoming. When the Buddha realized this, It said that the spotless, immaculate vision of the Dhamma arose. And this is what he said. Through countless rounds of of birth, I traveled, seeking but not finding the house builder. Painful is birth again and again. O house builder, now you are seen. You shall build no house again. Your rafters all lie broken. Your ridgepole is shattered too. The mind has attained to the unconditioned and reached the very end of craving. This is in the Dhammapada. And so the Buddha says from the Udana, there is, O monks, an unborn, an unbecome, unmade, uncompounded. If there were not this unborn, unmade, uncompounded, 
then there would be no deliverance here visible from that which is born, made, compounded. But since there is this unborn, unbecome, unmade, uncompounded, a deliverance is possible from that which is born, become, made, compounded. I will teach you the far shore, said the Buddha, the subtle, the difficult to see, the stable, the undisintegrating, the unmanifest, the unproliferated, the peaceful, the deathless, the sublime, the auspicious, the secure, the destruction of craving, the amazing Nibbana, the unafflicted, purity, freedom, unadhesive, the island, the shelter, the refuge, Nibbana. So these are the words of the Buddha. And um, the complete teaching of the Buddha Our teachers always said that we shouldn't hold back from the complete teachings, not just to give things that are comfortable for the mind to hear, but the things and understandings far more reaching. So let's sit for a moment. like to, um, as you're being quiet, end with these words from one of our teachers, Sayadaw Upandita. And this was a poem that he gave um, to all of us during my first long retreat with him. Adorned with a garland of giving, feeling joy and dignity with kind living, birth only in states of clarity, great beauty results with integrity. Adorned with the fragrance of virtuous activity, for others a care and sensitivity, birth only in states of contentment, a heart removed of the thorns of resentment. Adorned with the sweetness of tranquility, soft rapture from a life of simplicity, birth only in states of calm peace, mental turbulence and distraction all cease. Adorned with the brightness of clear insight, the true nature of the world is seen right, birth only in states of ease and happiness, a mind of wise discernment and openness. The three poisons of wrong view conceit and craving, no longer hinder or cause inner tightening. Vow deeply to develop the true way. Adorned in the heart, then freedom will lay. Thank you for listening to the Dhamma.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.